well, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm not, I'm not a white woman. And I could never be a white woman. And I don't want to be a white woman. Welcome to Sisteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. I'm your host, Steph Van Schilt, and in today's episode, I was joined by none other than distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson on the eve of the 20th anniversary re-release of her seminal book, Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism. Aileen is a Gurnpool woman of the Kwandamooka people. She's Australia's first Indigenous Distinguished Professor and is Professor of Indigenous Research at RMIT. Her advocacy and intellectual work focuses on Indigenous sovereignty, and she's the founding president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association. I was utterly honoured to speak with Aileen about the timely re-release of her book, what it means to be an Indigenous feminist, and she was even kind enough to give a poetry reading towards the end of the episode. I started off by asking Aileen where she was calling in from. North Strabag Island or... um... Uh, in Kondamook uh, in Morton Bay. Uh, so, yeah, I'm on, on country at the moment. It looks lovely and sunny outside compared to I'm in Melbourne, so Nam. It's always lovely to be here. Did you grow up there? I grew up here uh, at a place called Mopi, which is means sort of what also known as One Mile, in the bush with my grandparents. Um, my grandparents raised me with um, seven other grandchildren. And uh, so, yeah, this is why I went to school and because um, this is our traditional country. So I was very fortunate to be raised on a country. It's, yeah, it's just it's just fantastic, you know, being able to be here. Return home, I guess, after a life um, more or less lived elsewhere uh, to be able to come back and spend the, the remainder of my years here until I... Um, join my ancestors so where else have you lived you said you've spent the majority of time elsewhere yeah i've lived in uh oh, brisbane i've lived in canberra um and i've lived on the mid uh, north coast of new south wales i've worked there on uh, on one of the reserves um in the in the 80s 1980s and um but yeah they're the the three kind of where I've lived and worked for the three areas. I don't, yeah, that's it. It's oh, and Adelaide. I was in Adelaide for a year teaching women's studies. So that's the other place. When did you decide that you were going to go into academia? Because obviously, you have a long-running career there, and you just said you went and studied or you went and taught women's studies in Adelaide. When did that move happen for you? That shift. Oh. Look, it was an accident. I uh, never actually intended to be in academia. Um, and um, I, I entered the um, Australian National University as a mature age student, but there wasn't any Aboriginal entrance. So you had to sit for a, a, 
a test, and I think there would have, I think there's about 300 that sat for the test, and only 60 of us were accepted into ANU. Um, and but I, I, I did love uh, being at university. I loved learning, and I loved um, the debates, the intellectual debates, and um, it just helped me make sense of the world in a way in which. Um, I didn't know, you know, because I uh, I think it, to give you some context, like Stradbroke basically was predominantly an Aboriginal community. So growing up in that and we had to go to the mainland to go to high school, which I failed miserably. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, going to uni, provided me with an understanding about um, uh, white Australians in uh, terms of the structure of society, a whole heap of things that I learned that uh, I knew that, uh, you know, we were up against. It's just, it's the invisibility of things when you don't understand, um, you know, the relationship between institutions, you know, the power of institutions, those, the role of the state. All of those things are, um, it, yeah, I found it really um, interesting and I basically absorbed like a sponge. So I, I you know, and I, I love to learn. I mean, I haven't, you know, one of my, my, my um, I, when I think about where I would like to be, I would love to be a postdoc again where I could just indulge myself. I don't have to teach. I don't have to do anything except just read and think. Um, that was uh, such a wonderful thing to do at that, you know. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, and I think that if you're, if you're a good scholar, you're always a perpetual student. Yeah, you're always learning. And interrogating and questioning. Yeah, absolutely. Where along the, your career trajectory did Talking Up to the White Woman come about? Was that post-doctorate or was that your doctorate or...? Yeah, that was my dissertation. So um, it had eight typos. That was it. Wow. In terms of evidence. Um, and uh, so it was uh, Professor Gillian Whitlock, who was the head of the uh, uh, examination committee. At, she was the chair at Griffith University. She was the one that approached University of Queensland Press to consider publishing it. Um, unbeknownst to me until oh you didn't know no uh, until they contacted me how was it receiving that contact strange <laughs> yeah it was very strange and um i you know i just thought why do you want, why, why would you want to turn this into a book <laughs> So, you know, I, you've got to remember this is kind of like I, um, you know, I was number 22. Indigenous people had PhDs, awarded PhDs. I was the first to graduate from out of the Queensland University, first Aboriginal, first Aboriginal woman. And uh, 10 of those PhDs were in theology, so they were Aboriginal people who become priests. And so, you know, there was 12 of us that really were in different disciplines and I only knew two two of those other people. So um 
I didn't, you know, there were, I, and they weren't in uh, in Queensland. Like Uncle Eric was, Wilma was in Canberra, I think, living at the time, and Auntie Faisal was in Melbourne. So I um, didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything about you know academic life. Um, you know, it's it's very um, it still remains a secret business to a, a large degree. Um, mainly because of the very individualistic nature of it and the competitive nature of, of being an academic. Um, it, uh, so I had no idea about the fact that one needs a monograph in order to get promotion. You know, I, I, so I, I guess I, mine was very much a uh, make mistake, learn, make mistake, learn, make mistake, learn. Uh, there, were no, there were no role models and, as I said, it was very... Uh, you know, I just found um, being in the academy very alienating um, and the best uh, support I guess I had was when I was in women's studies um, and the big, big call out to Professor Yvonne Corcoranantes and Professor Sue Sheridan. They were the two women that um, uh, supported me and uh, Professor Sue Sheridan um, taught me quite a lot about being an academic, the requirements of that, and also how to be, you know, strategic within uh, the university itself. Um, so um, I, yeah, so I was, I kind of like, was, I was just like the accidental academic in that sense. You know, I never really, um, you know, I, yeah, just, I didn't think of it because I didn't think that I'd do well. I mean, you've got to understand that I, went to university, um, was more or less a grade seven education. And uh, I didn't think I'd you know, pass, let alone excel. And how was that experience of overcoming that, I guess, fear and going into this completely different world with that level of education and... Like how how was that in terms of shaping you? Oh, that was um, well. I knew this was it, right? This was like I had to pass. There was there was just there wasn't an option. It was basically I had to succeed. I might add the other difficulty I had in my first year is my eldest son was killed. Oh, I have very vague recollections of my first year except that I worked out with three HDs, I think, in a distinction, you know, like I, but I, everything is a blur, really. Um, and I had to cope with that on top of just being there. That was um, really, really difficult for me. Um, and so I, and it was really, him, I guess, that kept me going because when I, I was actually thinking of pulling out because I didn't think that I'd be able to do it and my son stood beside me and just said, Mum, if you can't cope with this, don't expect me to. And that he, he said that to me two weeks before he was killed. So I've, I, ha I kind of hung on to that and that's what got me through. So there you go. You're an incredible person, honestly. Like I already thought that from your work and just talking to you now, like what an amazing story. And here we are 20 years later. 
and the book, your book is being re-released and the press release called it both timely and timeless. How do you feel having... But it's, again, it's an accident, right? Right. Because what, you know, like, again, it's an accident. I get called in, like I, so I get uh, invited to give a, a public lecture at RMIT and one of the people that was putting together the, the um, broadside at the Wheeler Centre heard me speak and thought that they should invite me to be on a panel. Um, and it had been 10 years since I had been invited to any feminist thing, right? So I thought, oh, this is a bit strange, but, you know, okay. Um, and what happened was um, apparently I, the panel went off. I was kind of, it just, yeah, went off and um, they sold out of the books like that. People lined up outside the Melbourne right up the street for book signing uh, which you know I again this is this kind of I had planned to go to dinner straight after the panel I had no idea that I would have to sign books or and then I kept just so it ended up that um I was there for a couple of hours signing books and dinner was late but again it was a situation where I well, you know, I was sort of in, in, yeah, in this context. And then kind of what happened was I think University of Queensland Press saw the opportunity because there'd been no mention of them doing anything prior to that. I think they just saw the opportunity and thought, well, this is timely. We should do something about the 20th anniversary. So, again, the accidental how I'm here is is really um you know, because they decided that that would be a great thing. And so it's kind of um, surreal to be sort of like I write, so I'm writing the preface, the new preface in, you know, in the middle of us being in isolation and um, having again to deal with kind of, uh, you know, death in that, you know, 13 of those women have passed that were on the cover of the book. and making sure that I honoured them, you know, in, in the preface. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it was really to reflect, I guess, on there were things that I wanted to say in the preface. I wanted to speak to young Indigenous women about um, the idea of feminism. I wanted to say, look, you need to understand where this comes from and you need to think about really... Um, you know, is, is, is a feminist what you really are or are you a, you know, are you a quote-unquote warrior or are you, you know, are you a yoda yoda warrior woman or are you, you know, are you really like what does it mean to be an Indigenous feminist is, you know, one level when you come, like I come from a very strong matriarchy and so I don't necessarily see um you know like uh, well to be honest I had taught myself feminism in writing the dissertation I hadn't done any gender studies or anything as an undergraduate so to come to I came to feminism in that way so I didn't really have an idea about what being a feminist was or is um and um to then have to learn about that but at another level, it was still not something that 
I felt was connected to me in terms of the way in which Aboriginal women's lives uh, are and and, um, and what our priorities are. I mean, there's, there's a big, you know, feminism it itself is disconnected from the body, not the body, disconnected from the planet. So all the theorising is remains human-centred, which is very much a product of the Enlightenment, yes? So except that gender is actually the epistemological centre of um, feminist theorising, yeah? And so that's still primarily a concern with the human. So I, and so therefore, um, feminists were not really concerned about um, how you theorise, how your relationship with other reflects the way in which, you know, the West has basically understood the planet, you know. Um, so I couldn't, in that sense, call myself a feminist. And I had read Alice Walker's stuff, you know, her, she says like, um, what is it, womanism is to feminism as lavender is to purple. Because, right, you know, and, and so those, even those kind of debates in the States made me think about, um, well, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm not, I'm not a white woman. And I could never be a white woman. And I don't want to be a white woman, right? So if we take the logics of feminism, which says that we theorise from the embodied and social situatedness of being a woman, then the theorising from the social situatedness of being a white woman is not going to be the same for Indigenous women. Yeah? Um, so that is why I do not say I'm a feminist. What advice would you give to up-and-coming emerging Indigenous women critics, writers, thinkers, academics who are talking up to the white woman and getting backlash? Well, I mean, if you understand power, then your expectation should be that it will exist and that it will happen. So if you start from, this, start from the position that, um, and, you know, I don't, I don't expect uh, the power relations to change, but because power is relational, I ex- what I would like, to see is that, you know, for white feminists to practice what they preach, let's not be hypocritical girls. You know, if you're going to say that um, you're on about, uh, you know, improving the lives of women and all women and um, that you are concerned with the inequity between men and women in the world and, and you, you, you you know, at one level, a lot of the theorising universalises that concept. So one assumes that by uh, default, we're at least theoretically included in the idea of the universal, um, that you should practise what you preach. And that's what, you know, and, and if you're concerned about, about the biggest inequities, then surely you start with those that are at the bottom of society, the women that are at the bottom of society. Understand the kind of privileged position that you're in, you know, and yes, there are, you know, I'm not, I'm not kind of diminishing in any way the, the, the way in which uh, feminists are still fighting for a whole heap of things. But what I'm trying to say is that 
if you put forward a position about all women, then you have to look at your privilege and you have to look at your privilege in relation to others. Um, and you should use that privilege in relation to others if you're going to improve the lives of women, all women. So, you know, that would be the thing that I want to say. It's, it's like um, I think one of the things I was taught, you know, it's, it's very um, like you can respect people who basically say I don't give a shit and I'm not going to do anything than the ones who pretend that they want to. Right? It, it's, uh, it, it's like you can, you can deal with the overt racist because you understand where they're coming from. And you can at least your expectations and your reactions to some way are determined because of that knowledge. But when you have a situation where people, you know, where women are saying one thing but not practising it, uh, that's, that is just plain hypocrisy. I'd rather you just say I don't I don't want to I don't care about indigenous women. Like like put your position, claim it. Don't try and make make excuses for your inaction based on those supposed principles that you adhere to as a feminist. I completely agree. You know, and for so young indigenous women who have expectations, maybe they should think about why they have those expectations that things will be different or and to understand, you know, surely by now you've understood that there's a cost to speaking out. There's always a cost for Aboriginal women to speak out. We, it's, it's the price of, you know, our lives are forged through struggle. You know, it's not forged through privilege, you know. Again, it's about, I think, um, understanding. Sure, we've got to keep trying and that's really hard, but we should also be mindful of um, the power relation that we're in because if you understand that then to some degree that you can also use it in different kinds of ways and it is yeah unfortunately um what we're involved in i mean it's not just feminists it's basically australian society absolutely um i did want to just go back to how you said you were invited to a broadside and it was the first thing you'd been invited to to speak out for such a long time you talked about that in your preface as well and that blew my mind do you think that it will be the same this time around have you on release of this book so far have you received more interest do you think things have changed in terms of people wanting to hear your messages and why do you think that was to begin with look I think that the book was ahead of its time, right, uh, which, you know, when one is doing the, doing the work, you don't, you, know, you don't sit around and think, oh, my God, is this book ahead of its time or, uh, you know, and so it, I think it's probably more pertinent at this time uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, the most, I, I, I have received a heap of media attention, which I have to say I am, um, not really, I'm not really, I don't really like being on media. Um, so, well, thanks for talking to me. <laughs> I find it exhausting. I find it exhausting. But it's also, you know, understanding that power when you also, you know, a relationship in the media is an understanding that you have no control over meaning. Like you have to give that up in order to participate. So, I 
at, you know, I'm, I kind of like, I'd rather just write. I'd just rather do the, you know, I'd rather just do my analysis and put it out there for people to read rather than listening to me answer questions that um, may seem at one level to be simple but are in actual fact very complex in, in terms of trying to find an adequate response. Um, so it's like, you know, how did I think? I didn't think about it being ahead of its time. And, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of their responses have been from Indigenous media and women of colour media, right? Um, so, and I think that's where the interest in the book is at one level. Um, do I think that I'm going to uh, be inundated with feminist requests? No. Uh, do I want to be inundated with feminist requests? No. I, you know, I have enough. Uh, you know, you know, I'm inundated to speak all over the world. I mean, the invitations come in. I, I know I have to say no. Like, it's not. I don't. I don't particularly like public speaking. I, you know, believe people would probably find this hard to believe, but I am an introvert by nature, um, and it, you know, it's why you don't see me on Facebook or social media commenting and doing that kind of stuff. I just don't. It's not. I'd rather just do the solid research and the work and, and publishing. So yeah, I don't I don't expect to be inundated, um, and that and I don't even oh, yeah I mean that's fine. Well yeah, and you were elected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, like yeah. Look, I'm you know again I didn't know I was nominated. Um, I when I received the, the email, I thought it was spam. Oh no, I did. It was my son, and then my son texted me and said, "Mum, have you have you read your emails?" And I went, "No, I'm on my way to the doctors, actually." Um, and anyway, yeah, I read it, and I was like, "How did this happen?" So, um, and they were well, they're supposed to have a big um, induction, so they're going to be doing it um, virtually, and then next year we'll be, you know, I have a huge dinner, and they. It, it is an amazing um, academy. I'm, you know, doing some stuff which I sort of can't talk about at the moment with the, with the academy since then. Um, and, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to sort of kind of react to, um, to say, well, how do I feel about it? I, I, of course, I'm, I feel very honoured, you know, I do. Uh, and I've yet to find out, though, what it is to be a, a member of the academy, like what my roles and responsibilities and all that are. So, um, yeah, very, very, very interesting. The um, you know the reception to the work overseas um, compared to here, and you know Australia doesn't have race studies. Australia doesn't have critical whiteness studies taught in the universities. You know, race in Australia has finally been, been a, uh, a thing like the Constitution had its race courts. The uh, first piece of legislation, the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, was a white Australia policy. So race in one sense in Australia has been configured through policy and law, right? And so, it, but it's not actually been taught within the curriculum. 
So you can understand to some degree why there's a dismissal of it, like as though racism isn't a problem, as though race doesn't exist, because most people think at one level they're colour blind, and yet the question always for me is if you're colour blind, how do you know I'm an Aborigine? Well, if you're colour blind, how do you know that that person's an African? Right? So the, the idea of colour blindness is fundamentally about, you know, not wanting to own the power that comes with your race privilege. And it's about how you can pretend to be colourblind when in actual fact you are seeing colour. You are seeing race. We're all raced. But the reason you haven't had to account for your race is because race has always been equated with blackness. Race has not been equated with whiteness. So only, only people of colour and black people have had to account for race. We've been, you know, it's the prison of race. We're prisoners of race, whereas uh, white people have never seen themselves as being raised. And that's about power. Because if you're, you know, because if you're powerless, how can you make white people say, but excuse me, but you're white? And excuse me, you are racialised. We racialise you as much as you racialise us. Because we're in, we're in that relationship. You know, you only know what your whiteness is because you're not black. Right? So that, that kind of binary opposition, the logics are in within the English language. You know, whiteness only sees itself by what it's not. You also mentioned in, I think it might have been the conclusion of the book or maybe the response about getting feedback to an Australian research fund submission that your work was maybe too political. And I, I know that you're, you do a lot of advocacy and policy work as well, but you talked about that feedback. Why is that only given to you? Because... For instance, if me as a white woman put something in related to anything, they would never question my politics, even though I'm inherently political as a white woman because I have this power. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that impacts your work, getting feedback like that, but also how you do balance academic work and your advocacy okay. work? So if we see ourselves as embodying knowledge, yes, um, which actually I didn't invent, which, like I'm just saying, that comes out of whiteness. White feminism talks about the embodiment of knowledge, the social situated knowledge, They're theorising from that position, right? So if we accept those logics, then everybody is, a, is an advocate, like every academic is an advocate and every academic, it influences the work that they do. It influences the questions that they ask, um, you know, and I'll give you an example. So Michel Foucault, um, basically, why is why did he write about the history of sexuality? Because he was gay and he was repressed. Why did he talk about the history of matters? Because his parents had sent him to a psychiatrist from 10 years of age to assess what was wrong with this child, right? So so the very, his formative years are, sh are shaped in a particular way and they're the kinds of questions that he investigates as an academic in his life. We can turn to the idea of Stuart Hall, like Stuart Hall, you know, came he, he came to the mother country, like, you know, to the centre of the empire um, and transitioned into an academic, uh, middle-class academic within the academy, writes about the social construction of black identity as being sutureless and how it, it 
it, there's a, a great degree of flexibility and mobility within it because that reflects actually the experience of his shift from out of one context to the other, yeah? So life, your life actually does shape the kind of questions that you ask and the things that you are interested in. Like feminists became feminists because why, right? Um, peace study people become peace study people because of why, you know? Australian studies people become Australian studies why, you know? Like, so there's always some kind of personal, emotional, psychological in everything that we do. And for some reason, we may or may not want to make a difference within that. So advocacy to me is not just about standing up and, and enunciating a position. It's also about the way that we think strategically in how we construct knowledge. There's an advocacy in that. So I don't see how anybody really is, unless you want to use the old, you know, enlightenment, separation, disconnection, categorization, lovely objectivity idea that this actually can be done when actual fact the only way it can be done is because humans do it. And then because humans do it, that kind of thinking can be undone. Anyway, so I um I just think that I'm probably a little bit more honest than most people about my positioning and um I'm I'm not into deluding myself. Um that I'm something other than what I am. And I think that's well, you know, honest conversations with self, really. Uh, and pretension is not part of in Aboriginal, like in the Gurumpul uh, law ways, pretension is one of the worst things that we can do. You know, dishonesty is one of the worst things that we can do because that speaks to your integrity as a person. And um, so one must always walk an honest path even though there's been big costs for that because me being honest in, in bastions of whiteness has been a problem. But I stay true to my law way rather than succumbing to uh, pretending I'm something that I'm not. And that, you know, I got told, Aileen, one never, one never criticises, um, you know, the hierarchy in public and public being in a meeting. And I said, well, so let me see, it's all right to do that in private. So you stab people in the back in private. You gossip and spread that through, 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 you know, your network, but you won't say anything publicly to, about the behaviour. Right? So, again, that separation between the personal and the professional I find problematic. You know, reading this stuff, you know, I've commented on this on a couple of times, but just understanding how that relationship works to basically allow things like racism to persist, you know, and sexual harassment to persist in the workplace is because of that demarcation. We don't associate the, the behaviours, the personal, what we perceive as the personal behaviours with the professional conduct. 
rights. And, and what I mean by that is we can think that a high court judge, you know, because they're amazing in terms of their judicial work, and that's professionally who they are, we can turn a blind eye to what else they're doing in the office. Whereas, you know, I, I was taught that um, integrity, like integrity is integrity, you know, and you've got to be held accountable. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the vice chancellor of a university, whether you're a high court judge. I mean, if your behaviour, you know, it's just like I know I'm held accountable for my behaviours, um, but those that it, those with no power usually are, aren't they? I was about to say it's all power again. It's all it power. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, anyway. This actually leads me into our Sisteria shout-out. I wanted to give a shout-out to Bo Spiram's podcast, Frontier War Stories. I don't know if you've heard of this, Aileen, but he is Indigenous himself and he's dedicated to truth-telling about a side of Aboriginal history that has been left out of the history books. So each episode he speaks to Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research books and oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. It's really great. Bo is amazing. Highly recommend that you listen to it with your ears and open your eyes a bit more. Um, and also, obviously, your book, Talking Up to the White Women, Indigenous Women and Feminism. Everyone must read it. It's that simple. That's it. That's all I have to say. What did you have for a shout out for us today? I'm going to give you a shout out. I'm going to read a poem. And this poem is by my brilliant cousin, Romaine Morton. Uh, who I want to shout out her work, I think she's probably, for me, it's not just because she's my cousin, I think she is our best poet. I really do. Like I just think she's so under undervalued. Um, but then listen to this and you probably understand why. This is called I Shall Surprise You By My Will. I will make oppression work for me with a turn and with a twist. Be camouflaged with stated ignorance, then rise and surprise you by my will. I will make oppression work for me with a turn and a twist. I shall sit cross-legged like a trapdoor, then rise and surprise you by my will. I will let you pass over me, believe me stupid and ill-informed, and once you believe me gone or controlled, will rise and surprise you. I shall spring upon you words familiar, then watch you regather as they drop about, like precious tears thick with fear, hear you scream and shout. Then I shall watch convictions break away and crumble like paper bags, and then as beauty I shall rise and surprise you by my will. It is only when you believe me gone shall I rise from this place where I wait cross-legged. Wait to surprise you by my will. In the alleys, in the clubs, in the parliaments, in the courts of law, parking cars, driving buses, and generally watching you, watching me as you pass me by, I shall wait cross-legged, wait to surprise you by my will. For I shall stumble from houses of education and I shall stumble from institutions of reform. I shall stumble over rocks, over men, over women and over children. 
and surprise you by my will. I shall tumble over poverty, over policies and over prejudice. Weary and torn, I stumble. Then bleary and worn, I shall rise from this place where I wait, cross-legged, wait and surprise you by my will. For the mountains we crossed, they were easy. And the rivers we, we swam, they were easier still. And even then, as I attempted to outrun inhumanity, I surprised you by my will. I have witnessed the falling of many, heard them cry and hear them still. Even with grief inside me growing, I command my spirit to rise and surprise you by my will. And for all people, we are here and we are many. We shall surprise you by our will. We shall rise from this place where you expect to keep us down and we shall surprise you by our will. For the bullets we dodged, they were difficult and this ideological warfare more difficult still. But even now, as we challenge inhumanity, we shall rise and surprise you by our will. Romaine Morton. Oof. That was incredible. Can we find her work online? You can. She's uh, also on Oslit. You can find her there. If you put Romaine Morton in, her work will come out. She has books. She is uh, amazing. Um, and uh, I, you know, I when I read her work, um, I she's just, yeah, you just go, wow. Um, if only I could write like that. Different kind of writing and thinking. You're both doing very important things, just yeah. different. And I hope the listeners enjoy that. Incredible, incredible reading, incredible shout out. I appreciate it so much. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today on Sisteria. It has been a complete and utter honour. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. Sisteria is supported by the Melbourne City Council Arts Grants Program and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and to the elders of all the lands this podcast reaches. Subscribe to Sisteria everywhere and follow us at SisteriaPod. Links to everything discussed in the episode are available at SisteriaPodcast.com. Our theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and it's from her album Spacings. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we hope you tune in again soon. Thank you.